I always felt like I was the only one who was doing this, and I was almost sad that music couldn't be my primary income. And when I realized that it didn't have to be that way, that's when the joy crept back in, slowly but surely. What fuels a multi-passionate life? I'm Jessica Wan, and in this podcast, I interview people who straddle two completely different worlds. I call them ampersands, and we are collectively designing the Ampersand Manifesto. Today, I get the honor of interviewing one of my closest friends, Tim Eichens. Tim and I met almost 20 years ago in our voice teacher, Susan Gundunis's studio. I saw that he was the only male singer in the room, and I made a beeline for him, thinking, ooh, a potential duet partner. Well, we became that and more. That first duet grew into a lifelong musical collaboration and a deep friendship. By day, Tim works at Autodesk, the maker of AutoCAD, Maya, and Sketchbook. As an executive assistant, he's supported the CTO and now supports the VP of Global Brand and Communication. As a singer and collaborative pianist, Tim has performed with the San Francisco Lyric Opera, Urban Opera, and SF Choral Society. Tim earned his bachelor's degree in music education and performance from Minnesota State University, Moorhead. He has studied at the Mozarteum Conservatory and the University of Salzburg, Austria. Tim, welcome to the show. Hi, Jess. Thanks so much for having me. I'm very excited to be here. Tim, it's hard for me to remember life before you, and yet there's a lot of early history that I still discover over time. Something that we have in common is our formative years in the Midwest, me in Ohio, you in Minnesota. What are some of your earliest memories of music? I was introduced to music at quite a young age in grade school. I was raised Catholic, and the first five years of study were actually with nuns. And I have to say that you might think that it would be a narrow education, but in music... I learned how to play the recorder first, and that was my first (laughs) love. In fact, I remember being asked, what makes a note sound like a note? And I pointed to my tongue, and I was in second grade, and I learned what articulation was right there. So that was a very, very interesting experience to be among nuns who were playing the piano, teaching recorder and music, and I fell in love with it right then. So it goes back to that long ago. And if I go on, I would say by age 13, That was a big year. My folks bought a piano. One of those, if you can move it, you own it. And so my mom, a labor of love, repaired that thing, sanded it down, made it into my personal piano. It's just one of my happiest memories. I felt so rich when she was done with it that I had this instrument that was all mine. (laughs) It was amazing. Thinking about the nuns as you describe them, of course, I think of the sound of music. And You actually, as you grew into your adult years, you flew farther from home, eventually going to Europe and studying music at the Mozarteum in Salzburg. How did that experience shape you as a musician? Well, again, yes, the nuns actually led me to that. We did music from The Sound of Music in our holiday plays, and I actually fell in love with The Sound of Music because of that. And then watching it on TV, I saw all these amazing images a beautiful, lush, verdant Austria. And I remember thinking back then, I have to visit this place sometime before I die. Well, in college, there was an opportunity to do an abroad program, and it was exactly Salzburg. 
And so that, that dream came true. I always think it's the universe that lines these things up when you put your mind to it. But that experience changed me dramatically. Just being away from home, it was the third year of college. I was nervous. I was scared to go to a country where it was another language and to audition at the Mozarteum. All those experiences enriched me if it was not exactly all I guess successful. I learned so much from all the things I did not know. I think that was the gift in the end. So is called my Alter Lieber Adam Herzog Frühlingsfieber. Gott beherrschte, wie verscherzte, Herzlingsparadieses. some of the sights and sounds that you remember from that time? Right away comes to mind birds and church bells. I never heard so many birds every morning waking you up. I never heard so many church bells. There are so many churches in Salzburg. And that's something that I still love. I walk into a cathedral and I immediately feel calm. It's not the scary, you know, huge massiveness of a cathedral, but just being able to sit and in a meditative way it, it just, I don't know, it's musical in its own way, even in the silence. You've been back to Salzburg many times in your adult life. How has it changed for you or maybe not changed? Oh, <laughs> it's interesting. With adult eyes and with an adult pocketbook, <laughs> I was able to do different things <laughs> as a starving student coming from a college you know, background. So going back now, I get to go to musical productions I probably couldn't always afford. I get to share music there. I have friends who still live there. And even the thought of doing, you know, a recital in Salzburg, it's very intriguing now. But the city's changed. It's grown. It's more modern. And yet it still has that hometown, small town feel. And I think that's what I love about it. It doesn't change that much. So you've been in San Francisco for a while now. Tell us about your journey out west and how has San Francisco changed in the time you've been there? Now I have lived more of my life in San Francisco than in Minnesota. I just went over that hump. I've been living in San Francisco 27 years. And when I moved out, yes, it was a very different time in the world. But also moving out here, I didn't have musical connections right away. And, you know, I was in a different job. I was trying to patchwork together a musical life. I found it difficult because surviving on a musician's salary in a city like San Francisco, pretty much my youth, I was mid-20s then, I found it daunting. And I also found it hard to enjoy sometimes the music because it was just hard to patchwork together you know, a musical financial life. That was how it started. And I came out here because at that time, my best friend lived here. And so it was a, it was a big draw for me. And I had visited one time. And that experience really attracted me to San Francisco. I found it to be very European. And after living in Salzburg, it just seemed like the most logical place to move to for me. My heart just was pulled in this direction, I think. You were part of the dot-com boom in the first wave, and you worked in a startup. 
I know you had been a music teacher before that. How did you get into the startup scene? I think there's one connection there that is important. And I started working at a restaurant called Max's Opera Cafe. And I got to play piano there. I got to, well, sling hash, but also sing there and meet singers. And all of a sudden, I, this whole world of music started to open up in San Francisco. That was about a year and some change into living here. And that was the biggest connection because one of my coworkers said, hey, Tim, my girlfriend has a position open at this company called Autodesk. Would you be interested? And I was when I heard out the hourly pay and what I was making waiting tables. And at that time, I thought, oh, you're going to sell your soul to the devil. You know, you're giving up music. And that couldn't be farther from the truth. So I found my way into Autodesk and rolled out into the buzzsaw.com, all by a connection through singing and waiting tables. Wow, what a big opportunity for you. And now you've been at Autodesk for, I believe, a couple decades almost, right? Yeah, yeah, it's at, I think I'm at 24 years here. 24 years. And in your Autodesk work, you are in charge of organizing huge events, paying attention to every detail. How do you think your life as a musician and a teacher helped you develop these skills? Oh, I think they go hand in hand. In music, we work to a meticulous degree of almost perfectionism in a good and a bad way, right? <laughs> because we want the music to be wonderful and sound great to auditors. And yet it can drive you a little crazy when you can't get one note right or one part of the the music that you want to sound a certain way. That level of detail led me easily into what I do now. It's different work, of course, but I love my work at Autodesk. It is challenging. Yes, a lot of details, but I just really enjoy what I do, and I think that's what's kept me here that long, not to mention just the wonderful people that I work with. That's what led me here. But I would say that there are just so many similarities in the attention to detail that relate to performing. And it's, it's really that simple. How do you balance your tech job with your work as a musician? One of the luxuries of working a day job is that I kind of get to pick and choose what I do now. And some of my progress in learning how to sing well, um, working with Susan and partners like you, I feel that the balance is actually easier because I get to choose where I put my time in music. And that can be a recital, that can be a like-minded organization that supports people who have day jobs. So I feel like the balance is actually quite easy, except when I'm really busy at the same time, you know, at work and in the throes of a performance coming down the pipeline. That's where things can get difficult or a little dicey, but it's also kind of exciting. <laughs> For me to balance it out, I try to memorize my music as quickly as possible. And then I get to really enjoy that process of how music is put together to a performance and still manage the work, the daily life of having to you know, work and, and do a good job at my company. How do you think this balance has shifted over time? Like when you think back to earlier years at Autodesk or even at Buzzsaw, what was your musical life like then? And, and what have you learned over time? Well, I've learned to enjoy it more. I think at some point, everything seemed important everywhere in my life. And there was a time where I don't think I enjoyed it as much as I do now. I have the sage gift of age on my side now. I find a way to balance all of that in my mind and really take a look at what do I want to do? 
what do I want to perform? And I get to make those decisions. I'm not guided by having to learn a difficult role because that's my job and my career and that's how I'm going to make my money. I can really pick things and audition for things that I really want to do. I, I think that's just been the most amazing flexibility and joy of being an ampersand. That's Tim Aishens with Daniel Lockert on piano, singing A la Katha, Sus a Katha, by Arno Durmsgaard. Let's pause here a moment so you can reflect on this question. Where in your life do you feel that you have creative freedom? Outside of hosting this podcast, I coach leaders in the workplace to navigate change, thrive in their roles, and stay true to their values. And I love working with ampersands. If any of this intrigues you, reach out to me at jessicawan.com. J-E-S-S-I-C-A-W-A-N. Now, back to the show. Along with being a talented singer, you are a sought-after collaborative pianist for art, song, and musical theater. How do you think your skills on piano help your singing and vice versa? You've known me for so long, and you know how much I just adore collaborative piano, working with singers. And I think that they go hand in hand in some ways. Being able to play the piano can be a crutch for me, so I have to be careful about that part. But being able to get into my own accompaniments and understand harmony and what's happening in music, that's a gift. So sometimes even learning music is just playing block chords in my you know, measures and singing my melody on top of it. That, that's a gift. I recognize that now. I just thought everybody did that, not realizing that that's not easy for some people. And I keep saying the word gift, but that's really what it is for me. I know that you and I have actually worked on the same pieces sometimes, right? And I've played for you, you've played for me, and I, I, I agree with you 100% that it's a gift to be able to do that because you understand those songs at a deeper level. A lot of the work we've done together has centered around the song recital. What about this art form appeals to you? I think it's the intimate nature of the event. I just love going to hear somebody vibrate who's telling stories. And I think that's what it really is all about for me. At the end of the day, I love to tell stories. I, I love to share. And if I can get really excited about the words, then I know that I'm going to convey that. And even if somebody doesn't know what I'm singing about because it's in a different language, if they don't have the translation, they should be able to feel something. And the art song format for me is just the most beautiful, intimate experience. Just to hear somebody vibrating up there, you know, on stage, 
as a soloist with one pianist on stage is it, such a, to me, it's a magical. It's my favorite. I think even over opera or symphony, the art of the song recital is, I think it's my favorite thing. Next to hearing a orchestra tune, that's my favorite sound. So you said this word, vibrate. And for, for all the listeners out there who maybe don't see singers sing live or haven't been to a song recital in a while, talk to us about vibration. What, what does that mean? What does it mean to see someone vibrate? It's pretty deep for me. It's not frivolous at all. I feel like when someone is singing well and air is moving, it's authentic. It has that vowel in front of everything. There's this magic that happens. In einem Bettlein A magic that comes out of somebody's body. And it's this vibration. It's the only way that you hear it. We, we, we speak this way and you can hear sonorities and resonance and all of that. But when it goes into singing, it's powerful and strong and effortless. And that's when the vibration happens. And the minute that somebody's singing well, I swear my ears just ping. Something stands up on the back of my neck. And I, I, just, I live for that. I live for that sound. Um, when everything's balanced in the body and air is moving, it's just beautiful. I have no way else to describe it. Oh, thank you for describing it. I recently read somewhere that those tingles that you get where the hairs on your arm stand up, not everybody gets that from orchestras or from sound. And so just going back to the word that you were using earlier, a gift, I believe that's a gift as well. How have your worlds of tech and music intersected? And what was that like? It hasn't happened a lot, but I have had the opportunity to uh, perform once at Autodesk, and it was lovely. I played and sang with a soprano who came in and did a recital for what we call Administrative Professionals Day, and it was like a nice little concert before a luncheon, and that was delightful. When I think back, another important way that my world at work and music outside of work has intersected was working on the board at the Community Music Center. I was able to secure space at Autodesk and provide an environment for the Community Music Center in San Francisco to come down and hold an event for uh, their donors. And I was so proud to have that opportunity to have my company support this wonderful 501c3 that's doing amazing things to make music available to anyone, regardless of age or financial status. Yeah, I, I love those examples. And I'm also seeing the intersection back to you know, what you studied in undergrad, music education, right? Something that you care a lot about and now you're supporting in this very unique way. How did your upbringing shape how you thought about what a career should look like? I remember very clearly one day I was on the side of my house back in St. Leo, Minnesota, and I was working with my dad on the lawn, I believe, and he said, kid, 
whatever you do, get a job behind a desk. Don't do what I do. And he was very blue-collar working, and he still is. He, he works very hard at the age of 79. And uh, I never forgot that. I don't think that I specifically looked to eventually be in a corporation because I, I was a music teacher in the public schools for a few years. But that shaped me a lot. I never forgot his words. And his toiling and hard work definitely took a toll on his body. I never thought I'd end up where I am, quite frankly, uh, with the day job. But that that definitely shaped everything for how I grew and, and where I ended up. How have your thoughts about career, success, and what life looks like changed over time? Well, I remember when I first moved out here and I was teaching, and I realized I probably wasn't going to go back into public school systems and, and teach there. And I had this moment of clarity where I told myself it was okay. It's okay if you don't have a career in what you studied in college, Tim. And it gave me so much freedom. I think for a long time, I felt there would be shame if I didn't do what I set out to do financially in college. Or um, I would let people down. And I was always worrying about you know, what other people might think. And when I found a way to graduate from that mindset, um, that's when life got really fun for me. Music became fun. Work was in its place. And I just found this new freedom that I had never had before. What about for singing? What have your ideas about success looked like and, and what do they look like now? It's interesting because... When I was younger, I I definitely felt like I needed to be more successful. I I wanted to find a way to work in music and support myself. And success back then didn't look like that. And when I made that decision at a younger age to let go of those ideals, my ideas of success changed too. My ideas of success then changed to I want to learn how to sing well. I want to find people in the performance arenas where I can work with them and still have fun. I feel like now success is, did I enjoy it? Not, did I get the role? You know, it's it's changed a lot that way. (laughs) I empathize a lot with, with everything you're saying. What fuels you to keep going, both in the tech world and as a musician? My colleagues... It's all about who I get to sing with. What do I want to create? That, that gives me the most joy because when you start working on a project like putting a recital together or a performance of a, a wonderful production, that's the fuel. The fuel is always looking for what's coming next, always having something else on the horizon. That fuels me. And, you know, I have to say in the past few years with the pandemic, that got very scary. It was hard. Zoom was great and awful all at the same time. And, you know, there was a lot of gratefulness in that period of time. However, being able to be back out and singing live and not having to worry about hurting each other with some crazy virus, I am completely fueled by my colleagues and the opportunities coming down the pipeline, things that are on the roster to perform. What's on your roster coming up? I'm excited that in December... I have a performance lined up with SF Salon Music, and that'll be a wonderful production of pairing art forms, and we'll be um, highlighting two musicals. So that's super fun. And on the heels of that, 
working on a song recital for next March with you. <gasps> with me! <laughs> <laughs> I can't wait. That'll be at the Maybeck Studio in Berkeley in March. Yay! What advice do you have for people who are pursuing or thinking of pursuing the ampersand lifestyle? Be flexible. Keep your voice in all you do and all that you create. Try to create unforgettable experiences. Keep them coming. This is an incredible niche to be able to have this dual lifestyle. And I do think it all comes from passion and keeping it fun. I think those are the things that I, that I tell myself about having an ampersand life. And I would pass that on to anybody that is inclined. I love that. What do you think should be in our manifesto? I think the manifesto should be to support. And if there is some sort of declaration, I would say music and a work career can coexist. And I want to encourage other ampersands to think that way and to connect. I, I just, I always felt like I was the only one who was doing this. And I was almost sad that music couldn't be my primary income and when I realized that it didn't have to be that way, that's when the joy crept back in, slowly but surely. Such a wonderful answer. Tim, it's been such a pleasure talking with you today. Folks, you can check out Tim on LinkedIn. That's Tim Eichens, T-I-M-E-I-S-C-H-E-N-S. If you liked this show, hit like, subscribe, and share with your friends and fellow ampersands. I had a chance to reflect on my interview with Tim, and here are a few key takeaways. One, I resonated with how Tim talked about the creative freedom he has in his singing career and the ownership over what he wants to sing when he wants to sing it. This is one of the benefits of designing a life where you disentangle financial outcomes from creative pursuits. It took us both a while to be okay with it, but now we've actually found a lot of freedom and joy that comes with being an ampersand. Two, Tim used the word gift many times in his interview, and it made me think about where these gifts come from. Sometimes they're from specific people, like Tim's mom who grabbed that piano and fixed it up for him, or from my grandparents who bought me my Yamaha upright piano when I was a kid. I'm still using that piano today. Sometimes gifts are more of a mystery, like why only 50% of people have the ability to feel shivers at the symphony. But whatever they are, I know I want to pay these gifts forward to future generations, to the people around me, to folks who haven't had the opportunities that I have. Three, I just marvel at how intertwined music collaboration and friendship is for Tim and me. To look back on the last 20 years and think about how much I've learned from and grown with Tim, it's really amazing. I cherish our relationship so much. Es ist das höchste der Gefühle. Es ist das höchste der Gefühle.